0: Welcome to L'Erte to the Bolognese podcast, where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition with the practitioners, translators, authors, and teachers working to bring the art back to life. Today's guest is Ian Davis. Ian studies Italian fencing from the 14th to 16th centuries, including Fiore, Pietro Monti, and later Bolognese and Padawan sidesword methods. He teaches dagger and wrestling at Boston Armizari. He transitioned to HEMA from Filipino martial arts and Jeet Kundo and focuses on bringing Fiore into the modern, combative, self-defense context. Ian, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm,
1: I'm excited to be
0: here. Yeah, so I'm going to steal a, a question from Guy Windsor. So whereabouts in the world are you?
1: Um, I'm here in Boston, Massachusetts.
0: Nice. And, uh, well, I guess that was kind of self-explanatory with Boston Armazari, but,
1: uh, <laughs> well, I mean, we have people driving down from Maine, like we, we've got people coming from all over New England that, that show up to train. So, uh, uh, that's, that's good stuff, man.
0: Um, so tell me a little bit about your martial arts background and how you got started in Western martial arts.
1: Sure. So, um, the first, you know, I did, um, I was like a kid like a fourth and fifth grader i did taekwondo um moved from that into kickboxing in middle school um and then when i was leaving uh that middle school i talked to one of the kickboxing coaches and i said can you know i'd like to keep doing martial arts what do you got um and so he recommended me over to the place actually that he trained at um and that's where uh, I got started in Filipino martial arts uh, and JKD. Um, so Inosanto Kali, um, Dose Pares, uh Pikiti Tiersia Kali, um, all of which are like different lineages or systems of the Filipino martial arts. Um, and, you know, there's kickboxing, judo, jiu-jitsu, a little bit of Wing Chun, just a bunch of, it's, you know, it was an old guy's club that I have. <laughs> I got beat up by old men for like five years. Um, And uh, when I was researching the Filipino martial arts, I actually came across uh, a diagram from, I want to say, Carranza. I'm not totally certain which, but it was a Spanish fencing book. Uh, And I was like, "What? there are books on fencing. and Found, I think Marazzo was the actual first source that I looked at um, back when there was like the William Wilson translation, and that was it. Yeah. Um, and so uh I started digging in and now it's been, I don't know, that was like 2012. Now here we go. Almost
0: nine years. Yeah, it's a while. (laughs) That is a while, yeah. I mean, you've been at this um for a long time. And uh, you know, so it, it seems like um, you know over the pandemic you've had like the most productive pandemic um, of anybody that I know of, um, producing two translations. Um, you know, one of them being the *Anonimo Ricardiano*, um, and the other one uh, being uh, *Wielding the Light of Mars* in uh, collaboration with Connor Kim Cowell. Mm-hmm. Um, what what kind of led you down the road to getting into translations?
1: Um, so I lived in, uh, basically I just had a ton of time. Um, so I was a Peace Corps volunteer and I lived in the Andes in Peru. Uh, so I was learning Spanish because nobody in my town spoke anything else. Um, and, uh, after a year or two, uh, with Spanish, um, I started actually looking at translating some of the Italian texts I was looking at, um, Italy, so like a couple, a confluence of a couple of weird things. Um, the first one is that the type of Spanish spoken in the area where I lived is very like old and formal. Um, like I've been, made, I've been made fun of a little bit by other Spanish speakers who are like, why are you talking like Chaucer? Like, that's weird. Um, but like people, you know, uh, the, a generation ago, everybody in the area that I lived primarily spoke Quechua. Um, and then uh, Spanish had become a thing, but it was a second language for a lot of people um, a generation or two ago. And so the, the Spanish that I've got is um, uh, a little, well, I mean, it's compo it's, it's like rural Peru Spanish. Um, and weirdly enough, that makes it so that I can read a lot of Italian um not really Tuscan Italian uh but I can read a lot of um non-Tuscan Italian so prior to like the uh the Italian Civil War and all that and kind of the implementation of Tuscan Italian as the main language uh across Italy there was a lot of regional variation and there's something about the northern part of Italy and the Spanish that I learned that really clicks well um you know the Spanish Habsburgs we're controlling that area for a long time. I'm, I'm not a, a linguistic historian, so I don't know um, why, but like uh, after I learned some technical words, I could just read Marazzo, and that got me really into the idea of like, okay, well, can we, we had enough uh, questions about translation that I kind of became the de facto translation guy at Boston Armazari, and then um, started saying, okay, well, I know how to Sit down and work methodically and create books. So let's do that.
0: Um, yeah, that's that's really awesome because I mean I think it's I think it's super important. I think every club needs their de facto sort of translation guy, <laughs> somebody that can go back and look at the text and like, you know, you run into a question, and you're like, I don't, I, you know, this this play isn't really working for me in some way. Is there some other way to look at it? And then you have somebody who understands the language in a way that can go and look at it and be like, well, it could potentially be this, um, you know, the the school that I come from, uh, we've got two branches, one that does Italian martial arts and the other one that does more German focus. And we have such a, an awesome um, group of like, German speakers that can just kind of give lots of, of varying ideas of what to do with the German um, it makes it makes going through things like talhofer so much easier <laughs> because everybody has a different take on on what talhofer is trying to say um, and in various other texts um, in that in that regard um, So yeah, I mean, I I see it as being incredibly valuable. It's something that I'm trying to develop in myself, just because you know I've had my own frustrations looking at some of the Italian texts. Like, you know, there's got to be something else, some other way to look at it. So that's
1: that's awesome. For sure, that's the um, you know, we'll and like um, you know, uh, translation is definitely an iterative process. So you know, the first generation of translators um produce good work and work that can be built and iterated on um but maybe it didn't capture all of the nuances and you know when the when the first translations were coming out uh a decade ago or more there weren't you know like uh the tools that i've got on hand are crazy like the um i mean google translate in and of itself has improved dramatically because of all the machine learning Um, And then, you know, like if I there's a some Russian guy put out like uh, a pictorial uh, collection of Latin abbreviations that appear in medieval Italian texts. Right. That didn't exist. That didn't exist three years ago when I started doing translation. So, um, you know, I think that's the nice thing uh, as more people come up in translation and learn more stuff about it. Uh, I'm really hoping, you know, there's the next generation of people after me who go, ah, Ian got a lot of this wrong um, here and here, and I'm going to go fix that. And then they produce their own. Uh, and there's also all that connotation and stuff. Like, I think especially, you mentioned talhofer like, those uh, rhyming couplets are not necessarily, like, perfectly clear. So having four or five people give different takes, that sounds, like, ideal for trying to yeah. interpret <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, especially because I think that our our understanding and knowledge of the systems is also growing. Um, I think that, you know, it also allows translators to have a better context for what is potentially happening in an action. And then You know, having a knowledge of various adjectives or things that they can kind of pull from, then they can look at it and they're, okay, well, this this makes more sense because, you know, I understand the overall context of what's happening in this action. So this word fits better than other words, you know, and and I think, especially coming from like, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. I think especially with like the Italian traditions, because now it seems like we're getting Italian translations like left and right, which is fantastic. You know, I mean, we're really starting to get a, a bigger following and a bigger breadth of understanding of the Italian sources because more people are actually putting the work into translating those where, you know, five years ago, it was mostly German sources. And now there are God knows how many German sources on Wichtenauer that you can go look at and and get context for other, other writers and things like that for what they're doing i think we're starting to get that now with the italian sources where we can look at we can cross-reference between different sources you know like what you and and connor did with um wielding the light of mars is a great example of that kind of comparing monty and and uh, vadi and like or at least kind of showing the sort of homogeneous nature of those two texts together um i think really helps to pro- provide a, a better understanding of a lot of what we're doing, for sure. Yeah. So, what? Did, what? Tell me about the uh, the Anonimo Ricardiano. Like, how one? How did you? How did you kind of come to like be inspired to translate it? And uh, give me a little bit about its history as a text.
1: Yeah. So, um, I most of what I'm doing is is always swinging back towards Pedro Monti. Um, mm-hmm. Colectinae is massive. It's got all sorts of interesting pieces outside of the martial arts part. Um, but one of the more opaque uh, things is his treatment on the Spadone, um, which is based in the Levada or the Rising Blows. Um, and so I, I, I dug around and I was reading Italian um, web pages talking about different texts and, um, I just said, okay, what what has rising blows in it? Um, you know, we had the Anonimo Bolognese that there's a lot of these like falso dritto hand snipes that like stramathone and, and hit the wrist. And so, you know, the Anonimo Bolognese has all this uh, stuff. And then um, I think I saw Ken Monshine's translation of the Spadone section of the Ricardiano. Um, and I went and I looked at that section and saw that it was largely, so I'm just hunting around through sources for stuff that talks about rising blows. Found Pagano, found the Ricardiano, uh, read Ken Monshine's translation, kind of read between the lines that there was a lot of jargon going on. And then when I went and looked at the Italian, it's, it's all jargon. Um, it's, you know, it's the text in the Italian is literally like, do the Segata um and and then like leave with a thrust and you're like okay cool that's that's (laughs) handy thanks um and so that that made me i started hunting around for like okay i have this jargon term the sagata okay where in the ricardiano is this referenced and i'm working down through it anyways and then i said okay fine i'll just write down my translation as i go along um, it's broken up into nice, neat little sections. You know, I could give myself like, let me do five bullet points um, today, and then I do those five, and I do do the same the day after, and then it was all translated. Um, it's a weird text, um, so it's a copy. Um, there's uh, the first actual. So what we actually have is is from the. Uh, Biblioteca Ricardiana in Florence, um, and it is a professional copyist has produced a copy of handwritten notes. Um, and interestingly enough, the uh, the very first page of the actual manuscript is a dude complaining that maybe the copyist like inserted their own understanding, um, and like, so there's a there's a like do uh, is an abbreviation in the... These are all shorthand notes that this thing came from. Um, and so it's like, is it dritto or dentro? Uh, so is it uh, from right hand or from the right or is it inside? Um, and so there's a guy you know, um, probably 500 and change years ago complaining about the same stuff that I as a translator have been annoyed about where it's like, write the full word, damn it. Like... <laughs> I guess what you mean? Um, so that got me. That got me hooked on it. Um, the fact that it's a copyist makes it hard to date. So um, it was. Uh, what were the? I, I worked out of the transcription that um, had to order it from Italy um, to actually have it on hand. Uh, Battistini and Venny um, transcribed the Italian uh, and offered. They had a lot of. Um, uh commentary on it trying to break down what they thought the actions were um and they were the ones who actually did the research uh on you know the paper so it's a copyist professional copyist would go to a paper shop um and purchase paper that they would then copy manuscripts and things onto and so that paper would have a watermark or uh, other kinds of like little identifiers and there's been a lot of research around connecting paper to particular manufacturers. And then we know we can go in and look at, like, okay, you know, when did the Vanetti family start making paper? Well, they got their license to do that in Florence starting in 1550. And, and we know the shop shut down in 1590. So we have a, we can start really narrowing down the scope. Um, but the fact that it's a, uh, so the latest paper used in the copy was 1587, um, which means it, it was probably, the I think the other paper was from like 1564 or something. So the dating of the manuscript is complicated, but we know for a fact, unless this was copied over a long period of time, we know for a fact that it must have been copied by 1587 or thereabouts because uh, that's when the paper didn't exist yet. Um, then looking at the style, we have to go back and kind of say, okay, what, what are the weapons represented here? Um, we've got the sword alone, sword with dagger. We do have swords with various shields, so that kind of opens things up. Um, if it's just sword and sword with dagger, then we're almost certainly looking at a later text as we move towards like the rapier manuscripts of later um, later authors. But we've got the targa, we have the rotella that's kind of leaning us back towards earlier then there's the pike um so pike and shot warfare had become the norm obviously by the time this was this was being written and included so we're leaning more towards 1570 now um we've got the spadone uh and so you know what do we mean by the spadone are we talking about like um bodies that comes up to the armpit pietros that comes up to the eyes we're talking about Alfieri who's maybe using like a bearing sword and is clear over into the 17th century. Um, and so it's a it's kind of a spitball guess. I looked at um, Marco Antonio de Pagano to put my estimate on the, the front end of 1550. We've got inclusion of many of the same weapons and so we can tentatively date the Ricardiano 1550 to 1587. Um,
0: yeah, and so, like, the, the Riccardiano Library has an interesting history, too, um, where it, it used to be a Medici house that was reclaimed by the city of Florence and by the Riccardiano family after the Medicis kind of fell out of power, um, or at least, I'm, well, transitioned their power um, to more of a, a, a ducal power. But um, some of the things, like, and, and it seems like from there they started collecting documents that were from various families in Florence um, and basically just kind of stashing them in the library Um, so I think that's really interesting because it kind of almost gives us a an idea and one of the things that I kind of picked up from reading through um, like the very last portion of the text where he gives his um, sort of admonitions or his his sayings that he has his hundred sayings um, a lot of it reads like somebody who was potentially uh, in the nobility they were in a position of power potentially yep. might have even led armies um to me it it actually kind of like strikes me as very machiavellian <laughs> with a lot of the things that he says um but it also references florence as a uh or it doesn't reference florence specifically but it does uh sort of call back to republics and and speaks fondly of republics um, which is interesting because if it is coming from Florence and he is, it, I don't know if it's just sort of, uh, you know, a bygone thing where he's just looking back and like, you know, the, the Republic was so much better than <laughs> the way things are now, or if it's, you know, actually identifying Florence as a Republic. then that would even put it earlier at like 1526 or so.
1: Yeah. But, uh, so that's the, um, uh oh man also from the research of um the two guys that did the transcription a number of the phrases there in the end actually uh come from a book that must have been published by like 1574 i believe oh, interesting um, yeah so that they're direct quotes from a play that didn't exist prior to that but now um let me refute that immediately so this is why the this is why the anonymous Ricardiano was a really frustrating um text um who is to say that the handwritten notes that were you that were then copied into the manuscript we have who is to say they have any relationship chronologically to the sayings right we know that the fencing material is of a kind it's written in the same way But we have no way, really, of knowing if if whoever you know they hire a copyist and they got the guy for an extra day or whatever, and they're like, yeah, you know, throw this in the back of that. (laughs) Can you just like tack this in? It's nice handwriting. We like these phrases, right? You know, who knows? Um, So I, I think the other really interesting point about a copyist being involved at all is that the material was deemed worthy enough to hire a professional and pay a lot of money out of pocket to get this copied? Yeah. Uh, why was it copied in the first place? Is it so that this individual, whoever hired the copyist, can have their own, you know, it was like with some other family, so they sent the copyist over to produce a copy, and now now each person gets to own um, a copy of the material? Is it uh that the original was damaged. You know, what if they were, it's conceivable that the original was much older and maybe was deteriorating and that's why a copyist was involved. Um, but it, it really comes back down to the same thing of like, I don't think anybody would hire a professional copyist for like my notes from the last several months of class at BA, right? Yeah. Um, I'm a guy. Uh, <laughs> write some stuff down and like uh mike o'brien our our head longsword instructor is pretty good as a coach but you know i don't i don't think anybody 50 70 years from now is going to be copying what want his notes um so that tells us at least a little bit of something about yeah. the, the who was the teacher somebody important um because yeah. they, they took the time and trouble
0: i would- I would love to see the receipt because if we <laughs> and the and the Florentines were actually really good about keeping receipts and and documenting those sort of things so I mean maybe it's out there somewhere and mm-hmm. and we you know somebody needs to stumble across it in some random book of records and you know some really boring log book of receipts right um, but then we'll find it and we'll have some this like really awesome piece of information to find out who who it potentially could be you know I mean but I can go on all sorts of, you know, crazy rabbit trails of who I wish it would be. You yeah. know, who, who is top of Milan that's referenced multiple times as being like the greatest sword fighter of like the 16th century? Could this be top of Milan coming down to teach some wealthy dude in Florence how to sword fight? How yeah. cool would that be? Like we finally have this reference of this, you know, at least some, even if it's secondhand sort of notes of top of Milan you know maybe it is um I don't know like looking at those though the, the the sayings in the back you know if it is somebody who's sort of writing this from a position of nobility it actually kind of provides a really interesting uh, counterpoint to somebody like Camillo Palladini um and I was kind of thinking about this as I was reading through it because Paladini is structured in a similar way and mm-hmm. uh in the back of Palladini, he gives his admonitions. And instead of it being like affairs of state and things that you would expect somebody who has some level of influence and power to have, you know, Palladini's talking about what happens, how, how, how should you best position yourself if you sit down at a table full of soldiers and he says a dispute breaks out, like how can you get to your sword as quickly as possible, right? Mm-hmm. That's a very common person kind of thing. Like,
1: yeah, you know, he's very practical
0: yeah exactly and it's it's really interesting his advice because he actually tells you to slam your scabbard down on the ground so it shatters and then pull your sword out um which is is, yeah no he he gets if you haven't had a chance to read it go take a look at it i don't know if you have do you have a copy of paladini
1: i don't i've never looked at him
0: oh man dude you got to check it out okay so one of the other ones is, is super interesting because he, he's like, there's a story of this guy, this German noble. Um, so one of the things he tells you to do is always check to make sure you can withdraw your sword from your scabbard before you leave your house. And then another one, he says, you should pull your sword all the way out and check the edges in the tip of your sword, because he, he relates this story of this German noble who one of his servants ended up doling his sword and shaving down the tip and then he went out to go fight a duel and had basically a useless weapon and got killed in this duel and it's the coolest thing like i mean kind of like thinking of these things and these are the things that paladini sticks in his book right and it's like you compare that to Ricardiano where you have these affairs of state and all these different things which one of the things that i absolutely love uh since we're on the topic is his just absolute like throwing shade at the french that was hilarious
1: (laughs) where was where was that in there it's it's been a minute since i've uh, Um,
0: yeah let me let me pull i'll pull out these uh quotes here i'll just go through some of my favorites i think (laughs) um so he's like, the French are impetuous in attacking and constant, or um, are, excuse me. All right. So here we go. The French are impetuous and attack, are more impetuous in attacking than constant and preserving. Yeah. Right. And then the yeah. other one was, um, <laughs> the French are more ready to
1: buy than prudent to keep. <laughs> I think that's a, so like um, that might actually be useful in dating it right like when was the last time there was real deep common animosity to the French in Italy like cer- certainly around the time of the Italian wars yeah uh,
0: well yeah I mean and the Italian wars kind of wrap up sometime in about 1550 so I mean that's really the last time that the French are there and it could be leftover animosity
1: towards the French that's just like yeah. hey <laughs> One particular French guy that the author really did not like. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, you know, you mentioned, the, like, um, I think this is, uh, 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 Pal- Paladini is kind of, uh, I mean, if, if we, like, translate him forward in understanding what he's really talking about with Checking the Edges and the Point is, like, if you carry a firearm, it's like checking your magazine and press checking to make sure you've got one in the pipe before you walk out the door. Um, it's, so there's like a very, there's a there's a, a practicality to that that almost suggests lower class in the same way that like Vincenzo Saviolo um, certainly was. You know, he was a, he was a soldier. He was like lower nobility and a soldier, but his system is very much about like you know put your sword on the right side of your body gather towards the left side of their body, whatever happens, shove your hand forward real, real fast. And then like, check if they're dead. If not, reset, <laughs> pr- proceed again. Um, and I think you know that's a, uh, the complexity of the actions in the Ricardiano, um, like for me are a little suggestive of more like the Sala tradition where um, it's not necessarily like doing murder with your friends. It's like hanging with the boys and and swanging and banging. So, um, but the inclusion of the pike and the Spadone is certainly like very militaristic.
0: Yeah. And I mean, he even gives like practical advice for like leading armies, you know, talks about the unpredictability of, of warfare and um, you know, how to kind of, deal with that unpredictability to to essentially not rely upon certain things talks about how diplomacy is more effective than combat because combat is so unpredictable um Mm -hmm. and those things to me are are really fascinating because one i mean it's it's really great advice but two um you know it it just kind of shows a level of understanding that's pretty pretty interesting Um, and that's why those those things to me strike me very much as as machiavellian which i think is you know just funny but um yeah so like you know this this text is is super interesting cuz like you know kind of getting into the the more like sword specific things rather than just kind of the history of it it's it doesn't feel I mean, there is there is some jargon, but it even feels like some of the actions are a little bit more um, explained in, in a layman's term way. And I, yeah. I don't know if that almost feels like, it, if that's what really kind of drives it to feel like this is notes from somebody kind of observing a fencing master. But it doesn't, you, you don't necessarily get a lot of the, like, Morazzo for example who just kind of invents his own terms for certain things that don't really line up with other texts that we have like this guy actually explains the actions in ways that are like really clear and in some ways
1: yeah um I think the like the the jargonization um really strikes me as the kind of things that uh just happens in a club where you're where you've got like people that are trying to communicate information quickly, right? So the one that got me is we have been referring at, at BA, we call the the falso manco beat in Fiore. We call that the shoveler. Um, it's the shoveler because you're just, you're doing the exact motion you do if you were just shoveling. Um, and, you know, in, in the Ricardiano, there's a section where he talks about making a Pala di reverso. So, pala is in shovel, a shovel of reverso, and it's definitely a false sp right? Um, so, you know, that's uh, that's fantastic that we created the same jargon that somebody back in back in the historical period was like, yeah, this makes sense. And that's you know, it's I need to I need to rapidly communicate a specific action, shoveler. If I say shoveler, even a completely new person is going to be like. Like, like this, you know, and they, they do the little shoveling hand motion and you're like, yes. Yeah. And so all through the anonymous the jargon is like that, where it's, it relates very precisely to what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. That I, I
0: got the same impression and I, I kind of appreciated it a little bit because I feel like, you know, one of the things as I've told people to go and get the text. Um, some of the things that I've told them is like, Hey, this is really cool because, he does explain things very precisely like you know yeah. one of the one of the things that I love is the fact that he has different words for when you're cutting short um, when you're when you're cutting short when you're going for a beat um, I mean, we get that a lot in, in other texts, but it, it just feels like there are certain things that he kind of outlines where like he's giving you that tactical thing that sometimes is missing from other texts where Maratza will just tell you to cut a mandrito. And then you kind of have to fill in those little details of whether or not that's a cut short. It makes more sense that you're doing a cut short because let's say you end up on the outside of their sword and then you're like, Oh, okay, well then I, I need to cut this short or, you know, this needs to basically be a failure. This guy actually like gives it to you specifically, and then you can just figure this stuff out and then it gives you a better framework for how to approach the other sources.
1: Yeah. Um, You know, I, I think that's the, uh, the way that I envision the original text that this was copied from being created was literally like each lesson that some, you know, 16 year old noble kid is, is being given by the traveling fencing master. He like runs over real quick and, and, and like take notes because um, there's specificity to it. There's this kind of like illustrative jargon. Um, and um, ultimately it makes it, 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 there's a very clear progression of pedagogy, which is I think what I'm more interested in. You know, morasso was writing for his son, Sebastiano. So like the most frustrating yeah. part there is where he's like, you know, the various Manpreeti and Reversi that one can do from this guard, my dear son, Sebastiano. Uh, so I shall not lay them down because you know them. And it's like, damn it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the Anonimo is like lesson one, throwing a Mandrito and a Reverso. You will throw the first entering the right foot. You will make a Represa. You will throw the second. And you're like, thank you. <laughs> 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 thank you for being clear. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the, the other thing is just the the sheer brevity. Um, you know, I mean, nothing touches the Anonimo Bolognese in terms of just like, Um, it's how much material is there Mm -hmm. Uh, this one though if if people are really interested in learning like 16th century italian sword in one hand 58 plays individual plays with a single-handed sword and 166 variations of those plays yeah that's insane like absolutely insane
1: But you get to actually, right, so I, there's a, that's what I love when I talk about pedagogy, why I love this text is we're starting from bare bones basic, we build out the, you say it was 58, it's been nice. Yeah, 58, yeah. Yeah, 58 simple plays um, where it takes you from essentially like throwing basic cuts out to things like the three thrusts where we're using complex disengaging actions right so by the time you finish that 50 those 58 if you really work them you're competent and then you get to spend the next you know three years of study working all the different little variations and by the time you've actually gone through the entire text like you're probably pretty good and there's a tactical framework that's based baked into it um where and that's why I, i see it very much as like a this had to have been someone writing down a well-developed pedagogy from a master who's not trying to conceal anything, right? Like you, you, yeah. you, you paid the upfront fee, so you get the you get the real teaching, um, not the you know like uh, Mantilino and Marazzo. I think we're both selling their Opera Nova to get work, so they you know they can't they can't give you the the bare bones absolute. Here's here's my whole framework uh, approach because. <laughs> They need you to pay them the fifty Lyra to to really learn this, you know.
0: That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, and and the, the craziest thing is like I think it's the sixth play of the third set has twenty eight variations. It it it's just like it, the amount of depth in all of this is just like mind blowing to me because I you know I'm reading through it and I was sitting there and I was categorizing everything created a an excel spreadsheet and i'm just plugging this stuff yeah. in I, like going through right now my ideas of like what it what it is that he's trying to say and then like you know next thing you know like i'm turning around and getting into the, like the variations and things and i'm like wow this is this is a ton of material so then my spreadsheet is like growing wider and wider and wider as i'm just kind of like building it out it it's crazy but i mean it's it's super cool because i i feel like I feel like as people really start to study this and, and get into it, I think it's going to be sort of a cornerstone text that we can go back to and really kind of rely upon to for a lot of people to build out. Like, I mean, the best piece that we have so far for like a beginner study is probably D'Algokie. Um And, you know, we use Dallagokie to kind of feed back into Marazzo and Manciolino but you know, this this might give us kind of a different data point that we can work th- from to kind of build up into those those basic ideas and understand what is what is fencing in Italian culture. So I think it's really great.
1: Yeah, and how to re I mean, I would love to see someone work with the Anonima Ricardiano and then actually put the anonymous Bolognese in some type of rational order. Um, like I, I would definitely pay somebody to re <laughs> like the Fratus translation so that I can get something that's worth, you know, like, it's not all over the map. Like, um, you brought up the, the six, uh, the variations on the sixth play in the third part, so I had to bring that up and take a look at it. And it's, of course, like, it, it makes complete sense that, that would have 28 variations. So that's, um, if the adversary throws a mendrito at my head, I should parry in mezzo inside and thrust to the face, but parry with the point of the sword straight to the right temple, right? So this is like, Bread and butter basics. You are going to cover the mandrito inside and stick them in the temple, um, and then that being your base play. Anybody who's been doing fencing for a little bit can think of, I'm sure, 30 different variations on that easily to make their, you know, whoever they're teaching run through. Um, oh yeah, because it's such. And, and, yeah,
0: and and the cool thing is, is like from that play alone. Like he gives variations of, well, what if the mandrito is actually an imprecata? What if, you know, what if this actually comes from a left-handed fencer? And so it's like, you know, it it gets deep. Weird
1: edge cases, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) I mean, it's just, you know, this is your basic action, but what if, what if all these different scenarios and you just kind of have like this, this awesome framework to kind of build from? It's super cool. Um, Of course you know, as I was sort of preparing for this, you know, and, and really kind of digging into the text and I, I mean, this is going to take years of study to, <laughs> to really understand. Um, so I, I don't want to in, in any way, pretend like I have like a really solid foundation of, of what it's about, but you know, you do have a lot more work in this. So what do you think is like the tactical framework? I mean, we see a lot of changing steps and things like that. Um, yeah. That you might see in like somebody like Manchiolino, you see it in Morazzo when he's fighting somebody with, that's left-handed. Um, we see it in the Anonimo Bolognese quite a bit with this this mm-hmm. sort of prevalence of changing steps and, and initiating actions with Impercata with changing steps. So what do you what do you see as like his overall tactical structure?
1: So um, I think um, I'm actually gonna pull from uh, Pagano rather than the Ricardiano. Um, Pagano at one point says that all of Italian fencing is uh, the cuts and the faulty. So, like I throw my cut and I beat, and all of that with changing the feet. So I want to, I want to basically enter my strike at the very edge of measure where I can hit you, um, and then I'm no longer there when your riposte comes. So rather than um, is probably an unfair comparison but like you know I, I feel like the the german tradition generally speaking or at least for like the the 15th the late 15th century glosses now in a the they really want to get into measure and then hang out there in the creek and and throw combos to distract people and pull them out and, and then hit the opening right well i mean
0: So that leads directly into a quote from Vigiani, right? Where Vigiani's throwing shade at the German fencers, you know, writing to Charles V of all people. And he basically says the Germans will base, he says, what what does he say? It's something along the lines of they'll cut in and then wait for their opponent to do something. And it's like this taking, he he basically describes it as taking turns, like you do an action they do an action, you do an action, they do an action versus like actually trying to sort of lead the engagement in, in some sort of a way.
1: Right. And I think that's the, um, you know, the Italian framework is definitely, uh, definitely for sharps, um, where like Monty talks about, like, even in the wrestling that he, that is allowed in Italy, um, he says that Italian rule sets, uh, basically focus on wrestling in a manner that supports armed combat. So even if we're just like, you know, gripping doublets and chucking each other, we're not going to allow things like a single leg takedown, um, or at least like a head in front single leg where I'm not controlling the person's body and posture because if they have a dagger, they just whip that thing out and hit you six times in the back, right? Um, yeah. So even if the wrestling is not allowed to not really be about you know, with the sharp, um, I think that's a a big influence on the Italian fencing. Whereas, um, you know, if we're looking at like the Fechtula tradition in Germany, where, um, it's designed, a lot of it, a lot of the material is designed for fetter. Um, and it's designed to help you win and look cool at the Fechtula, you know, like, like the Prell house, flapping somebody with the flat. Why does that exist? Because it makes everybody in the crowd go, ooh. <laughs> um, there's, you don't see that in, in Italy because they're like, well, I'm taking time to train. I need to make sure I don't die. Um, and so coming to the edge of measure, I enter with my attack, um, and I, I'm not there in whatever way I need to be when your riposte comes. And then the other uh, big aspect of this is um, <laughs> i had it and i lost it. I've lost it. Uh, there's, um, no, can't get it back. That's all right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I
0: think that you're kind of, you're touching on something that's, that's uh, very interesting because, and this is, I think, another data point that I, I'm, I'm hoping this will help to kind of Unveil a lot of the way that we approach things um, you're you're a fiore guy so I mean you would understand this pretty well, but I mean that's basically fiore structure right like in if Fiore is the oldest Italian text that we have. And could be in some way a representation of what became common fencing in Italy, um, as some people kind of suggest this idea that your. Armizare feeds into your dagger plays, feeds into your longsword, and all three of these are sort of synonymous with one another. And you know, you can basically see elements of, like even his guard positions, right? Like even Fiore's wrestling guard positions, like when he's in, when he's in Postalonga and he's got his arm out. I mean, you're, you're basically in a position where like you've reached, you've got your hand behind somebody's neck. Right. And, and then if you look at the plays and the progressions of the plays, you can take the Armazari plays and find very specific times where Fiore is just doing Armazari, but with a two-handed sword, you know, and all it's, it's super cool. I mean, and it all feeds into each other.
1: Yeah. So that's the congruity, right? Um, Congruity is a really important thing for, um, like, I've spent a lot of time with um, actually outside of HEMA, but like Craig Douglas, um, who is a guy that he teaches gunfighting in the zero to three foot range. Um, and he goes around, he gets a weekend with people and needs to give them material that they can then work on and be functional with for they can train it for a long, long time after. And so, what he always talks about is looking for congruity where I'm not going to teach new actions I'll teach one action that that can then be applied in like six different contexts and you know you you brought up um, in our messaging before this uh, talking about like hand parries and things and like how wild it is that we're just slapping and moving around sharps but why teach if I if I've already taught you dagger parries you know why bother teaching you something new um, you know yeah. si- simply do dagger parries with your hand that's it Goodbye. um well yeah
0: well and and since I guess we can transition on to this subject because I, I do think it's interesting that he does um, you know for for people who are yet to sort of get into the text but are interested in the text one of the really interesting things about the way that the Ricardiano deals with thrusts is with hand parries like that that's his yeah. primary mode of, of parrying a thrust is with the offhand. And he actually has actions specifically for what happens when your opponent does the wrong thing and parries with their sword.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right.
0: And he's like, so if your if your opponent is the kind of person who parries with their sword rather than their offhand, then this this is what you would do to follow up, right? Almost like yep. that's like that's something that shouldn't happen or is just kind of like, you know, is something to look out for because this is the way that you understand the system. And obviously they don't understand the system that you're kind of working from so like these are key characteristics that you can look out for um and that's just to me like that was really striking because
1: well it it does suggest the norm is hand parry right and and if we start looking at late 16th century and early 17th century rapier that is the opposite of italian methodology so what happens what's going on
0: Exactly. And
1: I mean, so like earlier
0: data sources, like when we have somebody like Manchilino and Morazzo, you don't have any hand parries. You do have hand parries in the Anonymous Bolognese because he has sword and gauntlet. Um, yeah. But Outside of that, we just don't see that really kind of show up in the bulletin sources where like here, we're seeing this as like being the predominance of the action. And it's just kind of striking. I know that there have been conversations in the past about whether or not like can parries should exist with a cut and thrust sword, something that's really inclined towards cut and thrust. And you can't argue that this system is not 100% cut and thrust because those first 58 some odd plays a majority of those plays are all cuts and actions yeah. that you're doing with cutting with the sword i mean that is the predominance of this this system so mm-hmm. you know here we have this this weird duplicity that we don't get with other sources and it kind of breaks a lot of the preconceived notions i think that existed around what we should be expecting here mostly because we haven't really had sources that focus on the on things in this way um which so, is
1: there is one, there's Saviolo. Um, that's, that's what leans me towards a later dating within that 1550 to 1587. Um, Henri de Didier uh, is kind of on the same wavelength, Gaudinho. Um And so I think what we're looking at here is uh, the Italian Wars really produced this kind of, I, I've got a pet theory of this, uh, like the, the martial art that developed in the camps of the Italian War, um, there's lots of lots of people from all over that show up and are, are bringing different um, regional traditions together, and then there, you know, the expediency requires that that coalesce into something that can be quickly taught um, that can get somebody functional. Um, Saviolo's first ward with sword and dagger is. I, you know, I put my dagger straight forward at the level of the shoulder. I put my sword's hilt by my right thigh. I will gather on their left side and I will try to stick them with a stoccata turning my hand into fork. right? Um, if they do the same, I either beat up or down or I put it over my sword and, and thrust below my dagger into them. right? That's the method, that's the whole system. And then he's like, uh, if we look at the same word for sword alone, we're using the same beats with the offhand, um, so you know. Um, I think there's a there's a niche. Uh, I would argue for the existence of this very niche thing that developed from about fifteen forty five to maybe fifteen ninety five, with the the tra- the transitionary um, weapon from what we what we call a side sword now, where it's a, a, a shorter blade, cut and thrust. Short is maybe 36 inches by 1570, we've got like German um, complex helted swords with 43 inch cut and thrust blades. Um, and the handling characteristics on those is very weird. Um, it's not quite what I can do with like a 17th century rapier where the balance is shifted way back into the hand. Um, and it's not really what I can do with a side sword because the damn thing's so long that it changes our fundamental handling characteristics. And I think that's what's happening with the Ricardiano is it's really, um, have you ever seen the work on Saviolo from the 1595 club in England? Uh, I don't think so, no. Yeah, that's, they kind of dropped off the scene so much they had some really good YouTube videos seven years ago. Um, I think they actually got rid of a lot of those. Uh, but you can still see it on Chris Chatfield, um, his YouTube channel. They, they've they really focused in on this kind of like, I put the sword in the center line, and then my footwork brings me around the sword. Rather than me moving the sword, I move around the weapon. Um, and it's, it's really idiosyncratic, and I think those idiosyncrasies are pretty evident in the Ricardiano, at least for me.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because, I mean, that's, you see a little bit of that. You see echoes of that in uh in, in his strata techniques. Um, he's very much about kind of, like, once you come into strata, then you're not really moving the sword from bind positions. A lot of times you're kind of stepping across or you're doing things that um, you're kind of still trying to maintain that centerline focus, um, which is... Pretty interesting is the more i've gotten into that and the more i've really started to study that um the more I'm, I'm seeing that as being something that's a little bit more unique um in the way that manchilino is teaching that um of course i prefer manchilino as my bull and he's a source so <laughs> i'm a little bit biased <laughs> but he's, um he's excellent and clear he is yeah he's super clear um, so, when it comes to the Spadone, um, you're, you're kind of talking about like one of the things that you kind of discuss in the introduction of the text is that, um, you know, one of the things that you were and, and something that you referenced earlier is sort of this um, uh, mirroring of, of this lesson that Monty gives us, you know, in the, in the late um, 1400s. And then we start to see this kind of come around and that's the use of the Levada. Um, with the two handed sword. Um, so, you know, considering your background and the fact that you've studied so much of Monty and, and you've kind of looked at the Ricardiano um, with the Levada, one thing in particular, I've always been a huge proponent of looking at Morazzo's Falso Dritto and Falso Manco more as him trying to do the Levada rather than throwing Schielhaus, um, the way that I think a lot of people have kind of started to reinterpret Morazzo. Um, it is a thing. It is definitely a thing. It, it, right. It's a it's a big sort of seeing that false edge. Just because he says false monco doesn't mean it has to be rising. They, they're
1: taking it as it could be a
0: descending cut.
1: Oh, uh, well, no. I mean, objectively, if it if it's going to end in Guardia de Testa, that's almost all the right. I mean, that, so that's the, yeah. I mean, we, with the Bolognese, we have to look at what's the beginning guard of the action, what's the ending guard of the action. And if I throw... Yeah. Uh, if I'm going to throw a false, false Odritto that ends in guardia Testa, then how that doesn't that doesn't follow. I'd be in betta Fosa or beta cesa or something.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think a lot of that comes from the second guard, oftentimes being, uh, you know, him saying an enter, and mm-hmm. pe- people taking that as him going into guardia de Entreri, Um mm-hmm. which is, you know, I. I have my own pet theory about that kind of being one of the things where I think now that we understand the system more, that perhaps when Morazzo says and enter, he's not necessarily saying that you're going into Gordia de Entreri. But yeah. I, I need to do more work with his two handed sword material. In order to really kind of flush this out before I kind of really start throwing this idea out there and then, you know, allowing people to criticize it, but that's kind of the course that I'm on is that, you know, there's a different way to kind of approach this thing. Um, I think than the way the previous understanding that we had when Jurek first released his translation um i think that you know people are are kind of taking it it very seriously like very literally in in terms of the way that they're approaching it but um but the levada you've used the levada continuously in your sparring Um, and so you know uh one play in particular that i hate to see that falso like that that sort of sort of descending uh falso drito and falso manco is marazzo's second assault where he's throwing those actions continuously right he throws yeah. the falso yeah. manco and then the falso drito um that to me just reads like he's doing the levada and then you cut to the leg right
1: yeah absolutely so it, um consistency of my my take on all of this has been i'm not going to do anything that i can't find two or three sources um that talk about it because any anybody can come up with any kind of mcdojo crap they want um but what's if it's if it's good fencing it's going to appear in several places um yeah. and so the rising blows are actually a really interesting thing where um you know it's absolutely unequivocal in the Ricardiano that these are rising blows, right? It's the montante, um, the uh, the word levada, levare, to lift up um, in Monte makes it very unequivocal. It, well, he also uses montante. So does Pagano defines it as a rising blow. Um, so we've got this kind of rising blow tradition um, and it seems to be a very common thing in Northern Italy, especially. Um, and I certainly believe that Morazzo is throwing rising blows, not some type of shield how like action. Um, because of, you know, even, even if I am gonna enter, you know, uh, Guardia de Intrare, um, the most useful thing I can do to enter from outside of measure is a, is a rising blow that finds their sword. And then I might turn my hands across into Intrare and, and really pick up that angle it allows me to bridge distance um, and gain position in a way that that's what I see happening. Um, But when everybody else in a region is throwing rising blows with the false edge of the sword, um, it is improbable in my mind that a different author who may, maybe his verbiage allows for some kind of open interpretation. I think it's highly improbable that one author is going to be doing something different, uh, markedly different from everybody around him. Um, I, you know, Looking for that congruity. Uh, so the, like the Levada does a number of things that I think are really important, especially with the Spadone. Um, throwing a descending cut with a big sword. Um, this is my, I had a lot of different things that I was doing with the Levada until I got uh, a Regenier Spadone trainer that comes clear up to my mouth um, and weighs six pounds. And suddenly a lot of things that I was doing, for example, true edge, uh, rising blow from the right. I don't, that doesn't exist with the Spadone. I I, I think I can say that confidently. And and what I would say to anybody who does think that exists, get a six pound sword and throw a hundred of them in a row. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and your wrists are going to feel terrible, right? Like it's a very. I had all sorts of ideas about what I thought would work until I picked up a big heavy sword, and then suddenly I think that's part of the problem too with the interpretation of Morazzo. If you're if you're spending a lot of your Morazzo time with a two pound fetter, uh, like a modern fetter, I I would encourage you to get something of the appropriate dimension and weight um, because that provides a a very definitive marker that you're working against we can do all sorts of things when we're just reading and interpreting the text Um, we need something outside of ourselves that forces certain characteristics of the interpretation big heavy sword does that Um, one of the things it does is when you start throwing descending cuts you immediately feel how crappy your elbows feel Um, it's a really good way to get tennis elbow if you're not absorbing it in your legs pulling your hands into your core um there are certainly ways to throw really steep descending cuts with a spidone and and kind of absorb that and i think we see a lot of people make up for that by throwing more of like a squallum right it's not it's no longer a fendente uh and we just kind of gloss over that fact that it's not following the line of fendente but it's like they say fendente we should probably throw a fendente and if that doesn't work well okay well what do we need to change um once we have this uh uh outside element, i.e. a correct weight sword, dictating what our actions have to be. Um, Throwing a rising blow with a big heavy sword puts it right in the middle, and then the next thing that happens in this fight, I can quickly cover my head. Um, I think that's a really big argument for the rising blows. Descending ones mean your hands wind up low and people can hit into your opening. Rising blows, especially ones that end in Longa or end in um, Guardia de Testa uh, or even in Croce, you know, I could throw one from the left and then turn to Croce. That's gonna leave me in a position of cover with something that's a little too heavy, frankly, to rapidly move around uh, or to snap around in various ways. Um, So the Levada, it appears across multiple texts. We're using it to enter and find. Uh, We're going to use it to stick. We're going to use it to beat their sword away and then follow up with cuts where it's safe. Um, And um, in application, um, they've proven to be really useful to me. I at least don't get hit a lot of the time uh, in ways that other types of strikes won't leave me in those positions of cover.
0: Yeah, and, and something that I've always really found about interesting about the Levada too is if if your opponent is central and you throw a Levada, because it has that element of turning the hands over and and providing for that thrust through their cover, um, it, it basically goes right up into the armpit. And from a yeah. from a martial context, like you think about somebody who's wearing armor or something like that, I mean that's that's your primary striking point, you know, cutting to the head, cutting to the body, cutting to the arms you might be attacking somebody who has armor on those specific areas. But if you have this predominance of this action that's always attacking weak points and what armor would be, then, you know, I mean, it it even seems even more logical. And that kind of brings back to the idea of wrapping this all together and what is what is the the central framework of, of what it is that we're learning, you know, kind of what we you were talking about earlier with Fiore um, and how his, and, well, and just Italian wrestling in general and, and Monty's idea of Italian wrestling, um, I think is what you were talking about, how yep. all of it is meant for the battlefield, right? Like the, yep. the specific actions are meant for the battlefield. Um, and, you know, I, unfortunately, a, a podcast that I recorded with Bill Grandy, um, it, it, didn't end up getting out because the recording got messed up. But one of the great things that he said when I talked to him was, um, you know, he was talking about how as we continue on in HEMA, we need to start recalibrating our idea of fencing from focusing on the sal, And as people start to explore things like armor fighting and armor and the true martial context of this, see how armor actually influences what we're seeing in the cell in the sort of unarmored fencing concepts because a lot of the things that we think work simply because they work unarmored um, we'll find like contextual evidence in the armor sections that show that that's wrong because the consideration is not necessarily that your opponent is unarmored it is that this is something that worked in armor and therefore it ends up back like kind of filtering back into unarmored fighting
1: for sure that's a that's a really big thing that um that i've kind of been going on about and it's it's certainly an interpretation i'm not i'm not trying to say that i've got like the correct way of approaching something but like fiore when i approach fiore i think the two critical things that inform the rest of my interpretation are the wrestling and then um armor, uh, wearing armor, moving in armor, getting through armor. Uh, And what I like about that, it's the same thing about getting, you know, if you're interpreting marazzo, get a correct weight sword, get a correct length sword. Why? Because then it's not, it's something that's outside of your consciousness that is being used to inform your interpretation. Um, I put on armor um, and walk around and I try to do my my good Fiorian wide base and my thighs hurt. My, my, the backs of my, uh, my calves hurt if I'm, if I'm trying to walk around and stand like that. And then I, I look at Monty, Monty says use a narrow base. I put my feet together and I pillar my body when I'm in harness. Suddenly I'm not, you know, my bones are carrying the weight. And, it, and so then I have to ask the question, all right, where, where do these wide stances appear? Um, and so that's where I'm actually seeing Fiori. You know, we we're talking about the exchange of feet. Uh, for my interpretation of Fiori now, I walk around like normal with my feet close in under me until it's time to enter measure. And then when I enter measure, I wind up in a guard, right? Just by that that split second, and then I behave out of that based off of what what somebody's doing. And that's that's uh, my evidence for that is. My knees hurt when I'm running around in armor and I'm trying to do wide stance stuff, narrow stance, real good in harness. Um, when we look at our dagger interpretation, you know, people like to throw those big strikes that come from above and descend down into people. Um, put some mail on a punching bag and try to break through mail with that, with your arm disconnected from your body. It doesn't work. Yeah. Like, I, I have an immediate, you know, like my if I throw my dagger strike where I'm coming from way up high and I descend down into it and I'm not able to really sink mass and be attached to it, I don't get through good mail. Um, but if I keep my elbow attached to my body and I punch straight forward with my kind of like a ham, like a tight hammer fist, and I sink my weight through, you hear links pop and you put six inches of dagger right into the bag, right? So now. Yeah. My mechanics are informed by by not what I think about the subject, but I've tried it, and it worked or it didn't. And now we have to go back and kind of rewrite. Um, we were using couching and driving in armor. Um, doesn't work. I have to compromise a link first. If I just place my point and, and couch the weapon and try to drive through, it's not going to work. Um, I have to ballistically cross in. Compromise a link, and then I can couch and drive, and I'll be able to break that broken link, right? Um, so with the anonymous, it's the same thing we really got to figure out what sword am I supposed to be using? Am I supposed to be using a big cut and thrust kind of like proto rapier? Um, am I thinking more of like a uh, what we see in the Bolognese text? Uh, I think that's going to be critical to identify to then work out good interpretation.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's really important. Um, you know, I, I had a similar journey. Uh, when I was trying to cut with, uh, you know, sharp side swords and, uh, you know, really focusing on like, okay, what are the body mechanics here? Because, you know, looking at morato in particular, you know, the Squalum as a cut, um, it, it doesn't necessarily work as well as a cleaving cut as people potentially imagine. Um, it, yeah. the, the, that 45 degree cut Doesn't matter what kind of sword you have. Uh, The way that that describes it is is kind of is awkward to try to actually get a good cut. Um, And when I started doing what Manchilino was talking about, where Manchilino talks about the cut, like his fendente going from the ear down through the knee, that's a much steeper angle. You know, I mean, that's like seventy degrees roughly. Um, And dude, you can cut anything cutting like he he describes right like it's just it's like it's super easy and i'm thinking to myself like you know then he then he says that you can sort of change this and allow for variation as he goes through but teaching that as the fundamental is completely different than you know basically trying to form fundamentals around something that's a little bit more ambiguous in the way that Morazzo is and and what he's trying to do um like for constraining actions and trying to control your opponent's sword in some way um you know sometimes those 45 degree cuts might work but when you're actually going in to try to hit somebody you want to make sure that you're you have that that tight descending angle um, depending on, on the target, of course. Like, I mean, if you're cutting to the shoulder, that makes sense. You, you want to have that angle. If you're cutting to to the neck or to the side of the head or the temple or something like that, you want to make sure that you're kind kind of coming down into it. But um, I, I just see that as, you know, I mean, I it's, it goes back to that sort of concept of triangulation and really trying to triangulate everything that you're doing and make sure that you're feeding the proper... Um, you know, pieces into the machine that you're creating, you know, if, if, if the text is the machine, you know, if you're not giving it the right materials, um, to try to get the right outcomes, then you're going to come up with artificialities that aren't necessarily true to the text. Yeah, for sure. But, um, yeah, so, uh, let's see, I I forgot to ask you, um, but you know, since, since you have, you know, kind of dipped your toe in the Arno and, uh, you've got this, uh, fever now, um, <laughs> what will it take to bribe you to translate Altoni?
1: <laughs> oh, man. So I'll even send you me. a copy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have. I have um, uh, I don't see that happening. I, especially since I know at least one person who I, Uh, trust to be producing a good translation is working on it Um, and he's actually awesome okay he's he's going to school for history and is currently working on the Altoni translation I'm not going to name drop him just in the event that he like I don't know like loses interest and walks away you know there I think there are a number of working on Altoni um, and it won't be too long before we get there and uh, thank God for that that's good I I really don't want to do (laughs) it I just very, i want to see the, I want to see
0: the development of this florentine system I want to see this kind of come about and and have a better better framework and understanding yeah. for it because docilini to me is is actually a really interesting text and in that uh, you know he has this this sort of predominance of, of grappling um and that's kind of his his core thesis is working into getting to a grapple um, with a single-handed sword
1: that's, that's and very... i would love to see what else he has. Yeah, I think I think uh, Altoni. might, just from perusing, I think we're going to see a lot of that. I think that's very um, very Spanish, right? It's the it's it's moving into the the movement of conclusion and, and uh, gaining control of the sword. Um, but I, you know, we've had the Bolognese school, and I think the Ricardiano, Lovino, and Altoni certainly can be grouped. Um, and then we have a different flavor of. And Dacchilini, um and a different flavor of, of the approach, um, but they still love circles. So you
0: know, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's def- what's Italian fencing without circles, man? Yeah. I mean, you got to, you got to. Even Palladini, I mean, Palladini, he's he's the forgotten source, but
1: I, I will always, you, I'll be a huge. Teach- <laughs> it piques my interest. I pulled it up, and I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to take a take a look through here. It looks like Terminiello did a uh, a good yeah. translation, Palladini. Yeah,
0: right. and I'll, it's a beautiful book too. It's it's totally worth it.
1: I'll have to get
0: it. Yeah, it's it's good. I mean, he basically he combines in some ways because he was from Bologna, but he was also studying in Rome um, in the 1570s or 1580s. Um, he really kind of encompasses a lot of Italian fencing in a way that's, uh, pretty fascinating because then he basically gives the exact same description of his footwork as what Docellini and Altoni give. So he has the same image. Um, and basically says, you know, every, every time you make a parry or something like that, that back foot needs to come around to the outside, that outside line, the, the B or C, I guess to, um, is that is that how it was? I can't remember. It's been a while since I've looked at Dociolini, but the way that he describes it, it's it's the exact same thing. Um, in the way that he describes it, which is is pretty fascinating and interesting. Um, yeah. So that's that's good. At least at least there's hope for Altoni getting <laughs> out there, even if it's not. You know.
1: <laughs> I mean, so uh, that just I. Um, this will be a slight digression, but I, I remembered uh, what I wanted to say about the tactical framework. Uh, okay, yeah, go for it. What's thing for that? So uh, Monty gives us this the idea of like uh, whenever you want to throw uh, two blows, you should actually throw three. Um, and so there's a there's a provoker, a hitter, and then something that covers your retreat. And I think that really encompasses besides the changing of feet and the the always minimizing, you know, you brought up Daccellini always trying to turn that foot. What are we really doing there? We're we're using angles to minimize um, our entry into where we can be hit, right? Um, I'm circling that rear foot because although my point lands, the only thing that's still in danger is my hand and I'll recover that hand back out of measure. And now you have to take an extra half step to follow up and hit me. and so that combined with, uh, I think, the Anonymous, you know, the Trey Punta is a really good example of um, that theory from the Ricardiano, where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to faint, I'm going to faint, and then I'm going to hit and recover. Um, yeah. Like, that, that really nails down the, the trapping people into tempo, and then, and then hitting and recovering in a way where they can't touch us on the way out. And I think that really nails down a, a lot of the Ricardiano's tactical framework.
0: Yes. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's something that we see, um, you know, speaking of, and and maybe something that people should really kind of just kind of go down a rabbit trail for um, if they want is you actually do see that a lot show up in the Bolognese sources. Like if you look at Manchilino, um, that's basically what he does for a lot of his offenses with sword and small buckler, Um, you know, that he's oftentimes giving like those three attacks. If you look at the way that he retreats in his defenses, um, you know, there's always a cut to cover. Of course, Morazzo, there's always a cut to cover. You know, that's basically what the Mandrito Traversado is or the Reverso Traversado.
1: Um, and, and that's- And the Falso Dritto. That's, yeah. I think where the Levada really shines is where, as I'm exiting measure and I'm withdrawing the hands, it feels very much uh, like, you know, oh, you've got a free road to come in and thrust me. And the moment you extend your sword, that high cut, cut just right in the hands, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's, so it's uh... Entering and exiting um, that's really where you see the levada, you know, throw a rising blow to find the sword so I can then get in and do those thrusts to weak points you're talking about. And then I'll just punish you if you follow me on the way back out. Uh, and that's the, that's really nails down the uh, that final part of that cycle, right? The provoker, the hitter, and then the blow that covers us. As I'm exiting measure, if you try to follow me with your hands and therefore with your weapon, I, I target stuff.
0: Yeah, that's that's really good. So, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about tactics um, and sort of strategic approaches of, of really Italian fencing in general, which I think has been really fantastic. Um, you know, some of the other questions that I'd like to ask, like, you know, what are, what are some of the, uh, the biggest things that you've come across in developing, your what are, what are some challenges that you faced in developing your interpretations and how have you
1: overcome them? Yeah, so I think the um, for me, the thing that it's always gonna come back to uh, is finding solid ground to stand on. Um, in all of anything I've been looking at or working through, I come up with, you know, there were years there where consecutively I'd have a basically totally new framework over and over and over where I'm like, Oh, I, I don't believe whatever I believed before. I'm going to come up with this new way of looking at it. Um, and that, that leads you, it's kind of fun. It leads you all over, but it doesn't necessarily give you teachable, um, Stuff or repeatable stuff. And so then the biggest thing that um, I've come to in interpretation is trying to contextualize whatever I'm looking at um, into a particular sociocultural framework. And then trying to find uh, pieces of data outside of myself um, that will nail down elements of whatever I'm working on. So for example, Uh, Fiore, we've got like 1v1 murder duels and fighting at the barriers, and those are the two main contexts where this is going to be done. Uh, We've got wearing armor, moving in armor, we've got getting through armor. Um, I need to make sure, so I need to make sure that whatever I'm doing will actually legitimately pass through mail. Because if it, or or will put me in a position where I can like lift things up and and get in under it. so that's how I approached Fiore with like Monty. Um, I got kind of the right tool. He tells me, you know, what what size sword I should be using for his spadone material, and I was coming up with interpretation after interpretation that could be valid. Um, but the moment I got a six-pound sword that came up to my mouth, suddenly half of them didn't work, uh, and then I could just run it over and over. And when my body starts feeling bad, um, because, you know, I'm, I do not know, I'm, the way I'm recovering is putting too much force through my shoulder. I have to adapt what I'm doing to this externality, the, the big heavy sword. Um, and, and so it's more of a general approach. Uh, I think Charles Lynn talks about that too, with like, um interpreting historical stuff he he likes to actually get the thing and do whatever the thing is described uh, with it so like medieval camping he'll get like exacting reproductions and then he'll go put himself in bad situations and then camp right and, and he learns a lot from doing that and so that that approach of like establishing your externalities i think is a really that that's what has changed my approach to interpretation is locking down um those fixed points and then i get to work off of a real base and not something that's just constantly shifting yeah
0: yeah i just thought about something like something that we had talked about earlier like it it really hits on a thing that if i wanted to write a phd thesis which i don't because it's not (laughs) it wouldn't it wouldn't be any good for me right now Um, it like just the idea that I think a lot of the sources that we end up seeing end up creating, being created, we see like a prevalence of of sources being created, highlighting the type of warfare that we see at specific times. So for uh, Murazzo and Manchiolino in particular, you know, I think of the latter portion of the first phase of the Italian Wars really influencing their work and how they wrote. Um, you know, Murazzo's uh, the fact that Morazzo tied himself to Guido Rangoni in the way that he did kind of indicates that there was probably a deeper relationship between the two, other than the fact that he just mentions that they studied together. Um, And, you know, Guido Rangoni's participation in that first half of the Italian Wars kind of shows that, you know, there's a chance that Morazzo might've been there with him as his fencing master. Maybe that's why he was the, you know, the fencing master general um but we see these like we see a a lot of texts kind of follow after these like large periods of conflict you know and then there's kind of the second phase of the italian wars which i think you were referencing and how like perhaps a lot of what we see with (laughs) these handpickers things like that kind of stemming from that um with Fiore in particular Fiore kind of like comes at the conclusion of the age of great captains well actually i mean he's like in the midst of the age of great captains but it's clear that he's writing about something a system of sword fighting that was like prominent throughout that and was like you know this was something that he was highly regarded for um in the in that in that period um you know vadi might be a sort of fanboy of sorts but there were still elements of, of conflict going on um when Vadi was writing, uh, the interesting thing about like Vadi and, and Pietro Monti in particular is that's kind of the transition from the age of great captains being predominantly German and English to the age of great captains transitioning to being predominantly Italian and a lot of the sort of uh, usurpations that end up happening like with the Sforza and things like that, sort of the realignment of Italy. and that's kind of what informs those two um, And so the the I guess what I'm getting at is like we see this variation of style sort of played out through the like these historical examples tying it back to that and understanding the context of warfare at that time, um, and why these conflicts inform those and the way that they, they kind of play out. Like what was the style of, of fighting at the time? Like what was predominant? You talked about like the pike kind of being an indicator of like perhaps putting this at the, at the height of the pike. Which kind of makes it a little bit later, like those sort of elements. I think are are pretty fascinating because again, like even with somebody like Palladini, Palladini includes a pike. When he talks about using a halberd, he says it's just for you know, if somebody hands you a halberd and tells you to protect the doorway, you know, that's you know, you need to know how to use it. But that's his context for when a pike would be most prominent, or not a pike, but a, uh, a halberd would be most prominent. Um, and that's a different context, I think, than we see and that we kind of think of in terms of how these things were kind of going about, but, you know, again, going back to the admonitions of of Palladini, him talking about carrying a sword in the way that he does, you know, telling you telling somebody not to wrap their cloak too tightly around them around themselves, you know, talking about sitting at a a table full of soldiers and, and the, the potential conflicts that could arise um, you know, it's just such cool information that if we really tried to like build these frameworks around and like extrapolate this information to create these these funnels of of knowledge, um, I think we'd just be in a better place. Um, and I, I agree with you on that. Um, and then you know, context clues looking at the full picture.
1: yeah, I, I think it really goes. Deeper than that, in a lot of ways, I think there's um, understanding that the context in which these particular arts developed also could inform um, how we do competition. Uh, I think that's a really big thing. And, you know, fighting is important, it's how we actually determine the validity of an interpretation. Uh, If you have an idea and then you go out and you just get wrecked for it, probably not a great idea, you know? Um, Right. And so, like, I'd be really interested. And uh, now that I have armor, I really want to do like a, a fight at the barriers. I'm um, like like you know, research what does that look like um, in pretty exacting terms. Build build a field that, that fits what what Fiore would have been fighting in. Um, collect roughly the same set of weaponry, and then fight it according to whatever the rules were that we can find. Um, same thing for the fechtula. Like, I would love to see people working with fetter that you can bend the tip all the way around and touch the pommel. So, yeah, that's a very it, different kind of fetter.
0: <laughs> it is, yeah, for sure.
1: Um, and and the the con- If if you're doing Meyer, then that's why don't we organize our as we understand context. It's not just the context in which the art developed for actual use. It's also the context of how did they train it? How did they compete in it? Because people love competing. They did then, they do now. Yeah. Um,
0: so it's, it's interesting you say that. We just, uh, Triangle Sword Guild, we just had an event uh, called October Effect. And this year, we had a, a group that got together and really started researching judicial duels. Um, and basically, what they did is they pulled all of the, all of the judicial duels from Talhofer, Paulus Cal, um and uh there's another text that i can't think of off the top of my head but they really found like i mean they went through and basically created this structured judicial duel for two people to fight in all the way through for the pageantry the rules like the the um sort of the etiquette of the crowd um the expected etiquette of the fighters um they had seconds the role of their seconds, like how that played into the things. Like we built barriers, so they fought in barriers. Um, and uh, this this ended up being this really fascinating thing because like a lot of the, the KDF practitioners, because this was a, a German rule set, were like, wait a second, this actually kind of helps me understand Versetzen, and in the context of Versetzen, and how it's used. Because one of the rules is, if you are the defendant in the case, you cannot strike the first blow unless the Mm -hmm. fight has been reset. And so what we ended up seeing in this fight is you have one person who's allowed to strike and do anything, and you have this other person that's basically just defending themselves, waiting for this strike to come in. Yeah. And their best opportunity is to catch one of those blows and actually, like, provide a counterattack, and uh yeah and so it, it created this really intense situation and the other thing too is the person who was the uh sort of the the claimant in this affair like they could actually get really close to the other person like they could just drive up on them because the other person can't stab them they can't cut them right so they could do whatever they want they can get right up in their face and the other person cannot assault them until they attack them and so you have this weird, like this weird exchange of measure, where you have these two people kind of playing with this measure that they never had the opportunity to deal with before, yeah. and it, it just creates this really wild situation. It was the craziest fight I've ever seen in my life, but it was also the coolest fight that I've ever seen in my Earth? life because you could feel the tension, like you could seriously feel the tension throughout the entire thing. I mean, I think it lasted like a good like thirty five minutes before somebody actually landed a blow. But it was super intense
1: the entire time. Yeah. We did um, IGX this past year. Uh, uh, a guy from BA, Adrian Gunn, he decided he wanted to do a one-hit-kill tournament. So try to mimic, um, essentially, you know, Fiori says he fought five duels with um, just a Gambison and chamois Gloves. Uh, and his sword and God uh, and no friends, et cetera. Um, And he he fought five times and acquitted himself, right? So um, what we did was uh, the tournament was one hit kill. um, And by that, we mean, if you lose in the first round, you're effectively dead and you don't, there's no like pool that you're gonna go into, you're just done. Um, We defined what a killing blow would be, you know, descending cut onto the computer Thrust to the computer, thrust to the center of mass, um, cuts to limbs. You know, if we defeat your your tenure as a fencing master is pretty much over if a false dritto just removes half of your left hand. Um, so we right. defined all of these conditions. It was so much fun because we were we were doing rollings and daggers, um, dagger on the bell, rolling in hand. Uh, so people could get a little goofy with it, but you felt it, the tension just got deeper and deeper and deeper as we go along here. And Fiore is suddenly what everybody's doing. Even if they're ostensibly a KDF practitioner, not a single Meister Howl was thrown um, because strong side cut, strong side thrust and beat their stuff away from the left becomes what you do when you're like, oh my God, I'm about to, <laughs> I'm about to eat this like, thrust to the face, <laughs> and that's it, you know? Um, yeah. And so we can come up with kind of a, uh, I, that's what I'm talking about with like, uh, how we organize our competition can mimic very particular um, contexts. Like we could do sala fencing um, with the Spada de Jaco, um where we're trying to look real pretty and have everybody in the crowd go, oh, oh yes. And like, give us the applause, or we can do back alley, me and some guy from the other town are like sweet on the same woman so we meet outside of the walls and engage in a 1v1 murder duel right and then in that case we're not going to do points we're going to do we're going to do like fencing with the sharp sword so you know same type of thing we were talking about with the one-hit kill tournament what if it's disabling we can assume I'm going to get murdered in the next few seconds uh or it's like an insta-kill and suddenly all of the like you know we we use the buckler and the play sword um to look look pretty in front of the crowd and then we've got our large buckler and spada da filo uh and there's like five things we do across all yep. all of the bolognese texts. uh when they say spada yep. da filo it's shoveler it's thrust and it's yep. strong side cut that's it that's all you're doing <laughs>
0: And that's, that's, honestly, that's why I prefer Manciolino to, to Morazzo, because of his sword and large buckler material, it, you know, it's, it's concise. Like, I had, a, I had a, a student visit from out of town, and we were going through his Defense Against the Thrust material. And he was like, yeah, this is all kind of simple. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, that's the point. You know, yep. that's exactly what Machiavelli is going for. It's simple because you're literally—he's—he's he's telling you you're fighting with a sharp sword, because this is an earnest fight. You know, it's different. Like people say that Fiore is simple, and I'm like, well, yeah, of course it's simple. It's simple because it needs to be concise. That's exactly what you want in an earnest fight. You know, you don't want to think. I'm going to go through this play and this progression. And, and, you know, like you think about Muratzo and his, some of his progressions that are just like kind of ridiculous. And I'm like, of course I would never try that. And like, you know, you you do it in a tournament and you're like every once in a while you get it to work and you're like, all right, yeah, this is great. But you know, from a, like when, especially, so this is another really cool anecdote from, uh, from Palladini. One of the things that he says um, is that uh, when, you're, when your opponent parries in a dispute, talking about an earnest fight, it'll always be with more force than when you're fighting with your fencing master, right? So yeah. when you're fighting in an earnest fight, they're always going to give you more of a, a push, more of a feel. Their parry is going to be a little bit wider because they're going to overreact because of the circumstances, right? The real danger, and, yeah. The real danger, exactly. So they're not going to give this nice tight parry that, like the thrust the thrust goes like two inches away from their head. That's not how it actually happens in a real fight. And a real fight, they t- push that down, and it creates a bigger opening. You know. Yeah. That so.
1: <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
0: I mean, you're about to get impaled in the face. You know, you don't want that. You don't want to eat that. So.
1: That's where. Yeah. Um, like, I, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I, I didn't really have any. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Coming from a, you know, this is where um, I'm really interested in the training tools that we're using and, um, you know, uh, like uh, coming from a Kali background, Pikini tercia still regularly trains with live blades because that's important. Um, now, when I say that, people aren't doing, when I say that, people are like, that's insane. And then you're like, well, no, hold on. Let me, let me explain. What we're talking about, like, we were learned... fan
0: Every fan of Vigiani right now is just, like, pumping their fist. They're yeah, like, yeah, 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 exactly what Vigiani says.
1: Yeah, because, uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll do, like, a preset drill, right, where um, you actually put your index finger out and your thumb up to make, to give yourself little blade guards. Um, where I make sure I'm not going to cut my friend on accident. But then we, we run, we've been doing, you know, like the Sabayan drill, right? One of the drills from Pikiti Tirsia. And we'll just do that at a pretty good clip, not crazy, but like, like a pretty good clip with sharks and, and a high degree of technical specificity. Um, and we'll do that with, but when, when you're like banging and when, you know, you, you put on the lacrosse gloves and the fencing mask and have a stick. And that's, that's your, quote, bleed stand-in. Um, so let's go, you know, let's go back uh, to, the, to the 1500s, right? How did they train? Did they have, like, uh, you know, you look in Meyer. He's working um, in the background of a number of the dagger plays. People have what look like sharp daggers, uh, right? And they're, they're working these grips and reaching in and grabbing and manipulating shoulders and controlling that weapon to the ground. Um maybe they were rebated, you know, we don't really know. But um we see all these little references: the Spata da Jocko versus the spotted da Filo. We've got Vigiani saying you should train with sharps, like a lot of the time. Uh, how do I do that safely, right? Because it's not it's not good training if people are getting injured. So clearly there's kind of a um, you know, in the modern world, you look at like Um, live fire training with firearms, right? There are ways that you do that that are intelligent, safe, and build good skills for actually fighting with guns. Surely they had those training methodologies, uh, choices in different, you know, yeah, they use the sharp, but are they going really hard? Probably not. Because if I get wounded, that's not useful to me. And, you know, if I'm, uh, but, but maybe we grab rattan sticks that are the same length as our swords. And then we fight really hard with the, the rattan stick cause I'll get bruised, but that'll be fine. You know, I'll, like I, I may, it may suck for a week or two but I'll I'll be better. And then, and then I know what a really hard fight with a weapon looks like. You know, we see that with the Bataglia in Venice where they do, uh, Rattan's stick, probably. It's Kande, India. We don't, that's either the grass or it's probably rattan because uh, they had trade routes. Um, and they they get up on a bridge and just wail on each other like crazy. Um, so there's that context. There's the, There's the sharp sword training. You know, we have to put all that together and try to not just figure out what we're supposed to be doing, but how we train it to be effective in the real world, ideally.
0: Yeah. I honestly, I, I would highly encourage anybody who does bolognese fencing does a lot of sword forms and kind of recreates a lot of the plays and actions from the text to do those sword forms with a sharp sword. Yep. <clears throat> because it, it gives you a different feel the first time you do it. I, I mean, I'll never forget the first time I went out there with a sharp side sword and I was like, I'm going to go through Murazzo And I was so careful. <laughs> like, I mean, because I didn't have, I didn't have the the training and the context of what it actually meant to have a live sword in my hand. You know, if I hit myself in the back of my head with a fetter, yeah. it, whatever, you know, I just hit You know, it hurts a little bit, but when I've got a sharp sword, I'm actually thinking about that. And then it changes your perspective every time you go out there because you're thinking, okay, I felt that sword blade go through my hair, but that's cutting it a little close, you know? Yeah. So what am I going to do when I do this again with a sharp sword? Do I need to make this action a little bit bigger? Do I need to reconsider this action a little bit and the way that I'm doing it with my body mechanics? Am I doing this too close? You know? Yeah.
1: And it That's changed a, a lot of things. I got, um, I actually got it here with me while we're talking. Um, I got this rondel recently where it's more of a civilian carry one. Um, and it's basically got a straight razor grind on it. I mean, it's deeply, deeply hollow ground. And you see that the whole rondel daggers don't have edges. That's not real. Um, you go look at historical pieces. A lot of those edges are so thin, they've just completely rotted off. But they're there, right? There were these. You know, know, part of our dagger curriculum, I had people pinning hands down low and then cross-chambering to the the left shoulder so that they could throw a reverso. I'm playing with the shark and the moment, I'm like four inches away from my forearm as I pull that blade past, but then I'm immediately like shaking my left hand, like, ooh, I (laughs) I don't like that. And it makes me i went back in and sure enough if if my left hand is above my right hand i only ever pull up and strike the face or chest meaning i do a, a mandrito why because shark, sure, it's scary i'm not going to drag that thing across my own arm like that's dumb yeah
0: so but that also gives you more context too for like the tactical approach of, of some of these fights right like i mean there's, there's so many considerations that I think that those things help to provide, because when you understand the limit of that, then you would know exactly, like you have a better context of if you see somebody in that position, that's, that's what's coming at you. Um, You know, one of the things I love about Morazzo's dagger section at the end of his book is it's the only section where he says, if somebody's coming and trying to murder you, (laughs) which, is super interesting because why is he giving us this context where he's like you know like this is the only life or death thing that he specifically says that this is life or death and it's all of his dagger plays
1: yeah well that, that gets back into the mediation of violence right like the um nowhere in the world now or historically has there been totally unmediated you know quote-unquote perfect violence right like there's always we can look at it, there's modern in brazil kitchen knife and towel is still a thing that people do um where we're, we're basically doing Marazzo's cloak and dagger but with like a big old butcher's knife and a an towel wrapped around our forearm right and you'll watch people you can watch real fights of people actually engaging in this type of like combat with sharps and you will see neither person really wants to do murder, Um, like rarely like you're you're doing this big like we're making gestures, we're working in, somebody gets popped and they're like oh I don't like that and the fight's over and both people kind of like separate and start slinking away because the point was to like acquit yourself honorably effectively, it was to show that you stood up to somebody you faced off with sharps, and then when the injury happens, people say, Ben, that sucked. Okay, I'm gonna leave now um, and go get this like patched up. Um, and sh- you know, surely that was part of the context of Italian fencing. Um, and like, we, I mean, heck we can, there are still extant peasant traditions using sticks and knives and razors and things. Um, and so like the, The mediation of violence, too, is an important thing for developing technique like why do we, why are we slapping people with the? uh, a good example, you know, where the flat is used in various ways right like why why specify the use of the flat, you know, we can go to we can go to Germany and look at some of their laws where um, You had to engage with the flat first if you if you tried to cut somebody with the edge. Initially, you were going to jail. Right, like it's you, you, you really escalated the level of force. So you know that's a problem. So you have to hit with the flat first. So it's all yeah, it's all context and mediated.
0: Yeah, which is really interesting. I mean, that's that's kind of like what we see too with Talhofer and his duel, where he was ended up he was shamed for cutting somebody in the hand um, or something along those lines. I can't remember. I think he got cut. In the hand. But, if, yeah, if I remember- he got the yeah he was throwing sphericals yeah and he got cut in the hand yeah and they his, ended up both getting shamed right because he got hit and therefore he was shamed and the other person got shamed because he hit him in the
1: hand yeah is that right yeah yep yeah. i believe that's correct and then in the the version of Talhopper that was later than that date i think there's a specific note about like watch out for the hand hit <laughs> Um, <laughs> this is just hilarious right the, the we can sort of track tallhopper life from the evolution of pedagogy <laughs> oh fucking tallhopper
0: is that why he always draws everybody getting their hand cut off
1: maybe <laughs> he really wants to emphasize that fear yeah um, yeah yeah, so I mean, that, that takes it, just like tying it back to the Ricardiano, that again, raises a question for this kind of mysterious book. Um, what is the specific context? Are we talking about Espada Giaco? Are we talking about fighting in earnest? Are we talking about acquitting yourself honor? You know, like you look at Daccellini where the thrust is being directed to the shoulder, um, A, because that's where all motion comes from, but B, if I wound you in the shoulder, I've drawn first blood, and we both get to back up to our corners, and, and you know we've acquitted ourselves honorably, and we get to go. So um, that, and section by section, is the Sedone for Monty. Basically, says the two-handed sword is for exercise. Um, like he certainly does not center it as his like primary weapon in any capacity. Um, And there is at least one chapter where he says, hey guys, train with the Spadone and the Polex. We know you don't wanna, but really it's good for you. Um, So is the Spadone here for exercise? Is the Spadone here, you know, Alfieri certainly, the Spadone is for defending the banner and clearing out streets and stuff because he tells us that that's the context. Um, But I think it's really open to interpretation with the Ricardiano and that's why I, I kept it really minimal on commentary because I think a lot of other people are going to need to mess with this and um, try to figure those points out.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, and I think that's really cool. And I, I'm, I, I don't think that we can extend our appreciation for you putting that work in and and kind of starting the ball rolling on this text because, you know, as I, I mentioned earlier I really do feel like this is gonna be something that we're gonna start to see as as a cornerstone moving forward and um, understanding Italian martial arts and you know i I might not feel that way in a few years once I really become familiar with it but i I don't think that that's gonna happen because you know having already looked through it i've there's certain things that I've just been like wow that makes. A ton of sense and that really helps me understand you know x y and z from morazzo or manchilino or anybody else so i'm i'm super excited about it and you know i think i think the greater HEMA community for italian martial arts is going to be really appreciative of you uh for for really putting in that work because it's going to be awesome but um good. it's probably a, a pretty good place to to wrap things up um I, thanks for coming on and, and talking to me about this stuff because this has been an awesome conversation i've i've enjoyed the heck out of this and uh i know yeah, you. um i i learned a lot and uh i look man um you know anytime you're you're down in the raleigh area you're always welcome to to stop by and come train with us or you know we'll get you coming and that concludes another episode of Learte Arte de del arme the bolognese um, podcast it's to kind of get to know you. Want to thank Ian and, uh, again for coming on and sharing his yeah, same thoughts with uh, us uh, and really kind of getting into the Anonymous Ricardiano. Um such a cool <laughs> text and he's a really cool guy. i uh, really enjoyed that conversation. Right, yeah, so we'll um, yep. very yep. grateful to him for the work that he's done uh, throughout the pandemic. Um it's been a while since uh I've done a podcast, but, um, I think here and there, I'm going to try to get a few more episodes done. thought a lot about how I want to continue to approach this thing. And I might do a few solo episodes, just kind of getting some of my thoughts and ideas about the tactical approach to the Bolognese system out there. Um, i know one of the things that i do want to do and might have coming up pretty soon is a follow-up conversation with uh david biggs about uh stringer and and the concept of stringer of space um, playing with Manciolino and manchialino system uh, i've come to some conclusions and some ideas that uh really highlighted and kind of uh emphasize for me exactly what it was that David was talking about when I had him on the podcast that I wasn't, um, very familiar with and I didn't quite have an appreciation for, but now that I've really gotten into the depths of the tactical approach of Manciolino I'm starting to really appreciate what he had to say. Um, so I kind of want to follow up and talk to him. Um, if I can get him a, a time scheduled to, to come on the podcast, then I might do that. But, um, In the meantime you know getting through the holidays and everything like that i hope everybody has a happy holiday and a merry christmas um and uh you know we'll see what what comes in the new year and uh we'll see if uh, a few more episodes of layout to dollar may drop in in the month of january
1: but um until then stay tuned for that and stay saucy my friends